This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. We're good? All right. Well, uh, to those that are joining wherever, from wherever they're joining, as well as those that are here, welcome. It's good to be together. Thanks for... Coming on a Friday night, listening in on a Friday night um, here at Labrie. Just to, by way of um, heads up, next Friday is Ben Kai's speaking on on the virtue. Well, you're speaking on like laughing at yourself. Mm-hmm. Is that is that what's the title? <laughs> Some, yeah, it's uh, I forget what the exact title is, but it is about that. Yeah. <laughs> Not taking yourself so seriously. Not taking yourself so seriously. So, yeah, so that'll be that'll be great. So if you're able, please join us. It'll be a good night. Um, tonight's lecture is, I'm going to speak on, <clears throat> I'm entitled, The Apostle Paul, Our Mother in Christ, Metaphors, Ministry, and Masculinity. Uh, this lecture is an attempt to think with the Apostle Paul about his own apostolic ministry and see how it might connect to the fraught and complex matters of gender today uh, in the church. And I, I want to, my way in is thinking through or thinking with Paul's surprising use of gendered metaphors to speak of his own apostolic ministry. So it seems like a simple enough task uh, for us to cover all of this thoroughly <laughs> the next 45 minutes. But it's probably not difficult for many of us to make sense of, to make sense of the many vivid metaphors the Apostle Paul puts to work throughout his letters to explain his apostleship. He is a master builder. He's an athlete. He's a farmer. He's a father. It's perhaps less straightforward for some of us, though, to know uh, what to do with some of his other metaphors, and in particular, his maternal ones. So, for example, there's three times that he uses these images. I'm just going to read them off. And if you're at home uh, and you can grab a Bible, grab a Bible. If you're here and you have a Bible, we'll be looking at a bunch of Paul tonight. But the first one comes in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He says, But we became infants in your midst, in your midst as a nurse taking care of her own children, or a mother taking care of her own children. The second is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the first three verses. He says, But brothers and sisters, I could not speak with you as spiritual persons, but only as fleshly persons, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you could not take solid food. Even now you cannot, since you are still fleshly persons. And the third one, moving away from the nursing imagery and to being a mother in labor, in Galatians 4, 4.19, he says, My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. 
Perhaps like me, you've read these Pauline metaphors at one point or another and just sort of read right over them, not paused or considered them. But perhaps maybe hearing them back to back to back, uh, they don't strike us as Pauline. Like, oh, Paul talks like himself, talks about himself this way. Again, we're familiar with Pauline metaphors like putting on the full armor of God or running the race, images drawn from an arguably more masculine realm, especially historically speaking. But Paul as a nursing mother, Paul as a woman in labor, even Paul as an infant, we heard that one, I'm not going to deal with that one too much, but these, I think, are striking at a minimum. And we'll get to each of these passages more in length in their own time, but to explain my own interest in this uh, and why I chose to talk about this, this is the second in a series of lectures on Paul and women more broadly. The first one was uh, on Paul, and I looked at the named women in Paul's letters. He names 18 women and looked at the things he said about them, the titles he gave them, the work he described them doing. And I'd like to do some more, uh, eventually get to some of the bigger, more uh, the clobber passages, the infamous passages. Um, uh, but those are hopefully for another night. We can talk about them, though, if people have questions. But my interest in this grew out of a conversation with a student here a couple years ago who was just a lovely woman, very sharp, and had spent her adult life reading Paul and just did not like Paul at all. Uh, he's dogmatic, he's self-important, he's aggressive, he's exclusive, he's a jerk, and he's just too much like all the Christian men she knew in church. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I don't think she's alone in that. I think people struggle with Paul. I had a conversation with a friend this week who said he struggles with Paul. He just thinks Paul's kind of a jerk. And there's lots of different ways into making sense of Paul, who he was, what made him tick, what drove him, his theology, his practice. And tonight, I want to take this one particular path in that is admittedly not the only way, or even, I would say, the best way in, but it's an attempt to kind of balance out the more dominant picture of Paul that people seem to be working with, that he's kind of stereotypically macho and tough and aggressive, Paul was a first century man living and working in cultures that had a particular understanding of masculinity. And while at times Paul might appear to sit very comfortably, maybe even too comfortably, within his culture's conceptions of masculinity, having read out just these three quick passages back to back to back, it has to be said that Paul was not afraid to present himself and his work for the risen Christ in ways that would appear to show no regard for the cultural assumptions about what it meant to be a man. It's unlikely that Paul got any social capital for calling himself a woman in labor or a nursing mother. But So I've come to understand these metaphors uh, as significant, as well as, as a significantly uh, underappreciated or overlooked resource that comes from Paul himself to help us understand both his apostleship, but perhaps also the more fraught topics of women in church and our cultural assumptions about gender. And just in case anyone's feeling uncomfortable uh, with where this is going, I just want to be clear that attending to these maternal metaphors, these images that Paul uses, Paul uses is not necessarily 
some progressive, novel, cutting-edge take on Paul. Uh, While these images have been overlooked, I think, in recent generations, I don't think they sit neatly and comfortably with sort of conservative approaches to biblical manhood or womanhood, but I don't think they also sit particularly comfortably within progressive fixations on gender identity. And even though they don't fit well within those two sort of current camps, left and right, right and left, they definitely took root in the imagination of early Christians. So take, for example, the second century apocryphal, non-canonical book, The Acts of Paul. This book claims to recount the execution of Paul. And when the moment comes and Paul is executed, strangely enough, Paul doesn't bleed blood. But instead, his body yields of all things milk. Or you move a few centuries up, to the 4th century, and you can read one of the great theologians of church history, the, uh, the Cappadocian Gregory of Nyssa, who calls Paul a breast for infants, which nourishes the newly born of the church with milk and provides food for the church's children. Could you imagine hearing that in a pulpit today? I mean, it's probably good that we, you don't, but uh, it's still just quite quite shocking. These images that Paul uses caught on in early generations. And if you move to the 11th century, there's a well-known prayer of St. Anselm of Canterbury. who says this, O St. Paul, where is he that was called the nurse of the faithful, caressing his sons? Who is that affectionate mother who declares everywhere that she is in labor for her sons? Sweet nurse, sweet mother, who are the sons you are in labor with? And nurse, but those whom by teaching the faith of Christ you bear and instruct. Of who is a Christian after your teaching, who is not born into faith and established by you? And if in that blessed faith we are born and nursed by other apostles also, it is most of all by you. For you have labored and done more than them in all of this. For if they are our mothers, you are our greatest mother." Uh, so clearly, these images that Paul used took root in the imaginations and the ministries of previous generations, and I think they're worth our consideration. So I just want to outline briefly where we're going to go. Where are we going with all of this? I want to first talk about metaphors more broadly. I want to look at these three particular instances that we've already heard read out. I want to look at other Pauline metaphors that he doesn't use to describe his ministry, but that have these gendered aspects to them. Um, And then from there, I want to have some concluding thoughts, and we'll open it up for discussion. Uh, So since our way into this is Paul's maternal metaphors, I want to begin by considering what metaphors are and what sort of work they do. Simply stated, metaphors are a way of explaining something unfamiliar in terms of something that is familiar. Sometimes metaphors have been understood to kind of be like bulbs on your Christmas tree. Uh, They might add some flair, they bring some delight, they're nice to look at. They're ornamental, but they don't really do much more than that. And I think this ornamental take on metaphors undervalues and doesn't appreciate the sort of work metaphors do. Central to the work of metaphors is that they structure our way of perceiving the world. If you sit down to a meeting and your boss comes in and he says, all right, people, time is money. 
This snappy metaphor structures the shape you go about, the, uh, the way you go about being in this meeting. Uh, it structures your perception of your world, of reality. And there's another way that uh, we could we could think about this that's itself admittedly metaphorical. comes from a philosopher named Ava Feder Kide, and she describes this work of structuring our perception when she says that metaphors rearrange the furniture of the mind. So if I were to move all of these sofas across the room, and if I put uh, one of those chairs right in the middle of the room here, if I brought in a coffee table... Uh, things would happen in this room. This room would be different. It may seem larger. It may seem smaller. It would maybe seems more chaotic, more spacious. Perhaps it becomes more hospitable or perhaps kind of colder. Whatever exactly it is a particular rearranging of furniture does in a room, it changes our perception of that room, and it requires us to move through it differently, a new path for it. Um, the other way that I, another sort of work that metaphors do that I think is helpful, uh, is they draw us in. So this is what, uh, philosopher Ted Cohen says metaphors do. He has this lovely image of metaphor saying that a well-chosen metaphor is an invitation to intimacy. Explanations of the unfamiliar in terms of the familiar <clears throat> can bring us closer and perhaps can open us up to the unfamiliar. <clears throat> we might not know exactly what an apostle is. We might be intimidated by an apostle. We might be a little unsure or uncertain of ourselves around one. But chances are we know something of what a nursing mother is like. The care, the nurture, the commitment. That's built into this metaphor, this invitation to come closer, to be disarmed. Uh, I, I, a lovely... Um, sort of reflection actually on that particular reality of nursing comes from one of the most beautiful books I've read in the last few years called Motherhood by Natalie Carnes. It's a gorgeous book. Um, It's called Motherhood, A Confession. She is a mother of three and a theologian at Baylor. uh, And she offers some real insight into what sort of intimacy these maternal metaphors invite us to. Her book is arranged as something uh, something like <clears throat> a companion and a challenge to Augustine's Confessions, who she teaches she teaches that book every year. And so this book this book has thirteen chapters, which mirrors the confessions each chapter's sort of theme does, but it walks through her own motherhood and it's it's quite a I loved it. I thought it was quite a beautiful book. Uh, and it is a theologically rich reflection on the nature of motherhood, the thing that Paul himself is pointing to to help us make sense of his apostleship. And I was struck by how Carnes, uh, in particular, reflects on nursing, something that we'll see Paul employs himself. Carnes speaks of nursing as a means of attunement, a harmonizing, a syncopation. Those are more metaphors. Uh, between two distinct people, between the mother and the child. Carnes is not in any way romantic uh, or sentimental about the cost of the labor, the difficulty of nursing. She recounts some very difficult, uh, trying moments. She chronicles the pain, the work, the exhaustion, and the commitment that is required of a nursing mother. 
And in a move that I, is unusual of most theologians that I've read, which is maybe just because I'm reading the wrong sorts of theologians, I think her, her work combines eloquence and rigor and vulnerability and theology kind of all at the same time. It's a beautiful book. Um, but she speaks of this attunement uh, between the mother and the child that happens through nursing uh, quite beautifully. And I'm just going to read from it. It's also a lovely book to hold. Um, so I have it printed on the page here because I copied it out, but I just wanted to hold the book because it is a lovely book. <clears throat> she said the mother who is not attuned to her infant's condition would lose the baby to starvation, dehydration, or exposure. And so natural selection favored babies and mothers sensitive to one another's signals and bodies. Lactation requires a high level of attunement to the baby's appearances, smells, and sound. Lactation also helps to create this attunement. In our species, uh, the attunements born of lactation are part of what protects babies from abandonment. Nursing apparently stimulates hormonal and neurological responses in the mother that, along with other sensory cues, generates a strong attachment. Once mother and child have suckled, the mother has bonded to the infant, her desire for it surpassing all other considerations. Then she turns and speaks to her child, which, and the way she does this just mirrors what Augustine does just beautifully. It, it echoes. It's really beautiful. But she says, so I think of you and your occasional constant nursing and how this practice solidifies the infant mother bond that ensures your survival as if you are desiring me to desire you. It is such a complex desire, your desire to nurse. Can one, oh, and then she sort of goes on to uh, sort of like disagree with Augustine on something, but that's a different thing. But I, it's a beautiful book, and I, I love this language of attunement. My, one of my hopes in this lecture is that the common image of Paul as a cold, dogmatic, self-important, man's man sort of apostle just becomes less plausible for us. The man Paul was, of course, not perfect. He is no doubt complicated and no doubt difficult, and often just difficult to understand what on earth he is talking about in his letters. But at key moments in his writing, when he wants to describe his ministry of apostleship, he turns to mothers. He turns to these maternal metaphors. He desires to be an attuned apostle, bonded and trying to deepen the bonds with those he has been tasked to care for by the risen Christ. And as we move into looking at the text in particular, I just want to highlight one other book, also by a Baylor professor. Uh, so props to Baylor tonight. Uh, this is Beverly Roberts Gaventa's book, Our Mother, St. Paul, which is just looking at these texts uh, more at length. It's a, it's a really helpful piece of scholarship. I think she's a really good scholar. Um, it is slightly an academic book, but um, many of the things that I've learned about these texts, I've learned from uh, Gaventa. So first, we're going to look at apostles as infants and nurses in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. So I have it here in four translations. The ESV, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The CEV, which is the common English version, but as apostles, we could have demanded help from you. After all, Christ is the one who sent us. We chose to be like children, 
or like a mother nursing her baby. That one has a little bit of six in it too. But we prove, this is the NASB, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And then uh, it's, I was going to do the message, which doesn't have verses in the same way, so it's a little bit more. <clears throat> Even though we had some standing as Christ's apostles, we never threw our weight around or tried to come across as important with you or anyone else. We weren't standoffish with you. We took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending, but we cared for you the way a mother cares for her young children. We loved you dearly. Not content to just pass on the message, we wanted to give you our hearts. And we did. So throughout the short letter of of Thessalonians, Paul, as well as Timothy and Sylvanus, who also wrote it, show a deep affection for this community. It's on display all throughout the letter. It permeates the letter. In fact, the letter barely goes six verses before Paul refers to the Thessalonians as brothers and sisters, as part of a family. Paul is devoted to this community. But Paul hasn't been able to come and see them in person. In 2.18, he says he's tried again and again and again, but the devil has blocked him. So this letter will have to do, because he can't be there in person. And many scholars understand this to be the earliest of Paul's letters, so it's something of an experiment in Christian writing. And Paul spends much of the the second chapter explaining the nature and the authenticity of his apostolic work. He wants to show them what an apostle is. And I'm going to read uh, a section here from chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 5 to 12 and then 7 to 19. It's a long section, but uh, just a word on verse 7. Many translations you can see up here, some say gentle. Uh, We were gentle among you. Some say we were infants among you. I'm reading from the NRSV. I'm going to read from the NRSV that I think says gentle. And either of those translations sort of work. Um, But the two options come from the fact that there's a one-letter difference between gentle and infant. So an infant, I think, strikes people as... It's just a striking metaphor, so translators have moved to gentle. But most of our ancient texts say infant, and I think in light of this array of other familial images and metaphors and language, I think it makes more sense that it's actually infants. But I'm no... What do I know? (laughs) So I'm going to read Thessalonians 2, again, 5 to 12, and then 7 to 19. As you know, and God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were infants among you, like a a nurse or a mother caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. Remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, we dealt with each other, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children. 
urging and encouraging you and pleading you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I'm going to jump down to 17. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you in person, not in heart, we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, wanted to come again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. So elaborating on the authenticity of his work as an apostle, Paul turns to this dizzying array of mixed familial metaphors. The Thessalonians in this chapter are not only to conceive of themselves as brothers and sisters with each other, but they're also to conceive of themselves as brothers and sisters with the apostles. The apostles are also infants, little ones nursed, uh, or sorry, the, the, the Thessalonians are also infants, little ones nursed by the apostles, who are their mother, yet also their father. By verse 17, things have changed for the Thessalonians, who now appear to be the apostles' parents, as Paul writes that the apostles were made orphans by this separation. To follow the pattern of writing that Paul employs here no doubt necessitates a significant rearranging of one's mental furniture. The apostles are siblings, infants, a nursing mother, a father, and then orphaned children. There is a rich and complex metaphorical tapestry of familial images that moves at this rapid fire pace. And I think it's to do this work of attunement within the church and between the church and the apostles. Gaventa comments specifically about the back-to-back images of infant and nursing mother. And she says that Paul is struggling to identify two aspects of the apostolic role. The apostle is childlike, in contrast to the charlatan who constantly works to see how much benefit he can derive from his audience. But the apostle is also the responsible adult. In the first instance, a nurse who tends for her charges in, with care and affection. And the image of a nursing mother, uh, that was the end of the quote from Gaventa, the image of the nursing mother that Paul employs for his apostleship is certainly, I think, the most striking of all of the images that he puts out, and perhaps to some initial hearers, somewhat unsettling. Striking because it explains the depth of his care and his commitment, his ministry of attunement but somewhat settling in that, from what I have read, in employing this sort of image for himself, Paul not only disregards his day's conventions around masculinity, about being a man's man, but he, in fact, stands alone in antiquity as a male teacher of any sort who would call himself a nursing mother. Other ancient writers, mostly men, do, in fact, employ the image of a nurse, But Gaventa tells us that they usually do so kind of negatively because a nurse is soft and accommodating. Uh, And when they do employ it positively, it's always an example to illustrate a point. Uh, It is never a metaphor to describe oneself. So Paul stands out from his male contemporaries uh, in the ancient world as well as, I think, in the modern world. I've just never heard a male pastor speak of himself this way, or a female, anyone speak of themselves this way. Uh, And he uses this striking metaphor uh, on what sort of apostle he is. 
a spiritual nurture, uh, nursing mother. He's become attuned to his children. And we'll see that he uses this image uh, one other place in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to, 1 to 3. And uh, this is from the NRSV. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not yet ready for solid food. Even now you're still not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For as long as there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not, sorry, I got confused there. Are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? I just think it's fascinating that of the little material we have of Paul, relatively speaking, the little that we know about him, we don't have that many letters. He twice presents himself as a nursing mother. And this passage in particular, I think, has been even more overlooked or underinterpreted by many scholars, many mostly male scholars. Often reflections on this passage have focused on the question of diet, which is clearly part of what's going on here. Milk or meat, a spiritual diet that is either simplistic or one that is more mature and developed. This is the way that the image is used when it shows up in the letter to the Hebrews as well as in 1 Peter chapter 2. But it's not kind of the only significant thing here and how Paul uses it, which is more striking. Uh, what is the common approach where the focus on this diet, what it often overlooks or underinterprets, is that it is Paul himself who gives milk. Gaventa writes, before the advent of infant formula and baby bottles, it is only the mother or the wet nurse who feeds milk to an infant. So to be clear, Paul is not saying, you needed something, I went to the fridge, I looked around, you're not mature enough to have a spoonful of peanut butter because it'll get stuck on the roof of your mouth, so I'm going to give you a little sippy cup of 2% milk. That is not at all what he's saying. Uh, the image captures, again, Paul's apostleship through, this, through being a mother, through giving of himself. Gaventa writes here that Paul imagines himself as the mother who nurtures the one uh, the, the mother who nurtures, the one who knows what food is appropriate for her children. In other words, even though the image of milk and meat was current, Paul does something distinctive with it. He presents himself as the mother, the nurse of the Corinthians. And this also, sort of like with Thessalonians, this fits in with a larger pattern of familial metaphors that Paul is using all over the place. 39 times in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the Corinthians as brothers and sisters. And if you know much, really anything, if you read the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you know that the biggest problem facing this church is divisions. Uh, they are a divided church. So Paul's pattern of employing familial metaphors, I think, is deliberate, and it serves a purpose. Gaventa sums it up this way. If believers in Corinth accept Paul's designation of themselves as brothers and sisters... If they understand themselves to have Paul as their begetting father and their nurturing mother, if they affirm the, uh, the connection with Israel's ancestors, and most important, if they agree that God is the father of them all, then it should prove far more difficult for them to maintain their divisiveness. I think this is, again, how he understands his apostleship. 
It's one of attunement within this new creation family of God. The third verse that we're going to look at is a bit of a doozy. Uh, Galatians 4.19. It is the most complex. I think the other ones are a little more straightforward. Um, uh, And so here it is in a few more passages again. This is the ESV. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My children, I am in, this is a contemporary English version. My children, I am in terrible pain until Christ may be seen living in you. NASB, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And then the message. Do you know how I feel right now and will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your lives? like a mother in the pain of childbirth. This is the most sort of complex. Um, Gaventa comments that if you were to draw a picture corresponding to Paul's words here in this verse, you would have Paul concentrating in labor, and inside his womb we would find the Galatians. And yet the object of labor is Christ, who is coming to birth among the Galatians. The portrait is, to say the least, complicated. Again, talk about rearranging the furniture of the mind. Christ being formed in the Galatians. This is the awaited birth that the Apostle Paul is in labor for, in childbirth for. Paul is to be imagined as breathing and pushing in the pain of childbirth until Christ has been formed among the Galatians. Paul is not bringing forth Christ in them, But Paul's apostolic ministry is the sort of labor through which Christ himself will be formed among them. I think it's rather complex. And birthing metaphors are not uncommon in early Christianity. We see them throughout the New Testament. And they nearly always refer to this apocalyptic event, which doesn't mean end of the world. It means revelatory or inbreaking event. That, transpi- that transpires through God's dramatic intervention in human history. Uh, that might actually, though, lead up to the climax of history. We see this in Mark, in Matthew, in Revelation, other places in Galatians and Thessalonians. And the idea is that the old order of things is being eclipsed. There's a new order breaking into things. That's often the connotation of birthing images in Scripture. But again, uh, unique among all the images, Paul alone presents his male body as the site for this uh, this apocalyptic intervention. And there's a tradition of reading this verse as merely an emotional outburst. If you've read Galatians, you understand Paul is fairly emotional in Galatians. Um, that he's just angry with them and he throws out this com- this complicated, incoherent image. I'm just not as sure about that. Um, I think especially as we've seen how these other images work, thinking of Paul as an attuned apostle, his commitment, I, I think there's something more going on here. And some scholars, some readers of Paul have picked up on that uh, through the ages as well. And one reader in particular that I was just really inspired by, uh, who understood the power and the significance of this, was a woman named Zilpha Elaw. Zilpha Elaw was a renowned early African-American preacher. She was born in 1790 uh, in the Philadelphia area. She was born free. Uh, but she ultimately became a servant 
to a Quaker family and endured years and years of harsh fieldwork. Her, her story is pretty wild in a lot of ways, but she comes to have this radical conversion that she interestingly narrates in very Pauline ways. Um, she has this conversion and she feels a call to be a preacher of the gospel. And she answers that call and she becomes this traveling preacher. And she preaches throughout the Northeast. She preaches uh, throughout the slaveholding South where she preaches both the gospel and preaches abolition. She actually ends up going to England uh, as well and preaches there. And her, her autobiography is, and it's a long title, uh, it comes from a time when long titles were... Um, I guess the thing. Um, but it's memoirs of the life, religious experience, ministerial travels, and labors of Miss, Mrs. Zilpha Elaw, an American of color, together with some account of the great religious revivals in America, written by herself. It is, it's really, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. But she often draws on Paul's, Paul in her letters. And one thing that I thought was, in her, she, she draws on Paul's letters, in her, her autobiography. And one thing that I loved is she found this warm spiritual kinship with Phoebe of Romans 16. Here in my previous lecture, I spent a lot of time on Phoebe is amazing. Phoebe is awesome. So I, Zilpha, Phoebe, they're just, they're, they're great. Um, um, but Zilpha also hones in on this image about laboring, uh, as an image of ministry. And she, on one occasion, she writes about it explicitly. And on this occasion, there was she was going to preach, and there was a young man in the crowd, and he saw her move towards the pulpit. And he begins to cause trouble. He calls out names, he starts laughing, he makes a ruckus, he's continually pointing at her while she's trying to preach. Yet she keeps on preaching. And she notes that uh, before the night was done, his laughing and his mocking actually turned into weeping. Later that night, at a dinner with some folks, she learns that this man was a well-known slave driver at the time. This happened in the South. He was also a well-known drunk. And he didn't exactly have a reputation for attending religious services. But he listened to Elah's mighty preaching, and he actually came forward in repentance and tears, to the shock and disbelief of everyone who was present. Elaw explains her feelings while she was preaching through Paul's birthing metaphor. She says, my mind was greatly moved with evangelical interest for this young man. And like Paul for the Galatians, I travailed in birth for him. Elaw understands something that I think many commentators just breeze right by. The sort of ministry that Paul undertook and that many have tried to model after him. There is this amazing transformative irony here about what the inbreaking work of Christ can do. Elah labors for this man's freedom, although he is a slave driver who denies her freedom and the freedom of her own people. This is like Pauline ministry at work. This is, this is what it looks like. So summing up where we've gone so far, we see Paul. Uh, the once real-life persecutor of the body of Christ, he's now become this metaphorical mother, this spiritual mother of those in Christ. Of course, these are not literal descriptions that he uses of himself. These are timely metaphors. 
well-chosen invitations to intimacy that rearrange the furniture of one's mind about Paul and about his ministry as an apostle. And they structure our perception of what sort of attuned ministry Paul was on about as an apostle of the risen Christ. He sought connection, he sought intimacy between himself and his churches in order that Christ might be formed in them. These sorts of images that Paul ascribes to himself, nurse, mother, woman in labor, <clears throat> make any take on the apostle as, as one who perhaps sits untroubled in the masculine norms of his culture or any culture to be not quite right, to be maybe part of the picture, but not the whole picture. And uh, moving from his metaphors about his own ministry to metaphors he uses that have some gendered connotations about them. Uh, um, uh, there are some that I think we often miss because we're overly familiar with passages or we think we know sort of the main point of the metaphor. Now, keeping in mind that Paul calls all Christians to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, even gender patterns, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can figure out what God's will is, what is in fact God-pleasing and mature. This happens when we present our bodies as living sacrifices. So as those who are familiar, though, with Paul, he also doesn't shy away from presenting the Christian life in more kind of masculine metaphors, as warriors, as athletes, a call to be brave. Yet even here, in these perhaps more masculine images, Paul does something highly unusual in his own day that is often overlooked or underappreciated. And I've, I've sort of picked up on this through the work of Cynthia Long Westfall in her great book, Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. She is a, a professor of New Testament at McMaster uh, in Canada. She... Um, it's going to make a joke about Canadians, but maybe I, I she's, yeah, I'll, I'll hold off. Um, but what she says that Paul is, is sort of often doing in, in metaphors, she says this, Paul seeks to purposely create dissonance in the minds of his audience through his use of gender in metaphors in order to construct new identities and relationships for both males and females in Christ. Um, and one of the ways he does this is he applies stereotypical male metaphors to all believers. So when we see we see this when Paul calls all Christians to be spiritual warriors. Paul employs metaphors from war to describe his own apostleship multiple times. He is not only a nursing mother, but as in 2 Corinthians 6-7, where uh, he says he carries the weapons of righteousness in our right hand and in our left hand as apostles. There's numerous other places where he does this as well in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy. Uh, but he also describes the Christian life in such a manner. Well known is Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 17, where all believers, men and women, are exhorted to put on the full armor of God, the full regalia of a Roman soldier. Westfall writes, by applying masculine warfare imagery to all Christians, Paul invited and encouraged women to identify directly with one of the ultimate virile male icons of their culture, 
This was a place they were not allowed. This was an occupation they were forbidden from. And their presence would be not welcomed. It would be shameful for them to be there. But Paul imagines them, or calls them to imagine themselves as putting on this armor. In a similar way, Paul calls all Christians, male and female, to be athletes. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, he says, Do you not know in a race that runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Westfall notes uh, just a thing that I'd never thought about this. She notes that Paul urges all believers to join with him in contests, like in this physical contest that's drawn from the Greek gymnasium, where Greek boys and only Greek boys were physically trained uh, as an essential part of their education and their formation into manhood. Westfall sums up this dynamic in Paul that shows up in a few other places. He says, Paul invites Hellenistic Gentile women in Asia Minor, perhaps for the first time in their experience, to potentially share in some sort of equal power with men and in activities that were only allowed towards men. This goes the other direction as well. And I want to zone in on one somewhat uh, stereotypical feminine set of imagery that Paul applies to men, and in particular, husbands. Again, in Paul's day, Westfall notes, in Greco-Roman culture, virtue was manly, and males were stringently cautioned against displaying any kinds of effeminate behavior, dress, role-playing, or emotion. Uh, And so it's worth considering Ephesians 5, of all places, uh, kind of in light of that. Ephesians 5, especially 25 to 28. Well, maybe I'll hold off for a second. I'll read that in a second. But this comes in a larger section of Paul's writing. One of his household codes is how they've been described. And it's considered by some to be incontrovertible. Incontrovertible? Is that the right? Incontrovertible evidence that Paul adopted Greco-Roman cultural gender roles to be the norm for all marriages. I don't see Ephesians 5 as being that straightforward. And I'll plan to talk about it in a future uh, lecture. But I want to just point out the responsibilities that uh, that Paul assigns to husbands are in fact domestic chores that were in his culture delineated as exclusively women's work. Whatever exactly it means in Ephesians 5 for a husband to be the head and uh, and having the assumed authority that goes along with this, Paul turns some of those assumptions on their head. She points out when husbands are addressed, the male role is not described in terms of the expected categories of responsibilities in the public domain of warrior, protector, provider, and patron. Those are all, of course, good things. But instead, the imagery quickly shifts to household scenes of bathing, clothing, spinning and weaving was women's work in the ancient world, laundering, feeding, and nurturing. Because Jesus is depicted as providing these services for the church, 
which is both his bride and his body. So here's just the section. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. So he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Again, going back to what Westfall said, she thinks Paul employs these metaphors to create some sense of dissonance uh, within within his hearers in order to construct a new identity in Christ. The domestic realm in the ancient world was a woman's domain in both Jewish and Hellenistic cultures. Paul takes these stereotypical feminine activities and in light of the gospel of Jesus, he transforms them, he spiritualizes them to no longer be the work of a domestic inferior wife, but to be characteristic behavior of the Christ-like husband. These tasks, which were deeply gendered, inextricably feminine work, have been transformed by Paul to be not only spiritual, formational, but radically countercultural. I think this would, at a minimum, at a minimum, uh, unsettle men, force them to, to reconsider how comfortably they abide by their culturally defined assumptions about what it means to be a man in a marriage. For husbands, even metaphorically to bathe, to clothe, to feed, to nurture their wives, would, in the eyes of the dominant culture, be a tacit admission of their wives' superiority. This is the sort of work an inferior does for a superior. But the categories of inferior and superior, of men's work and women's work, have been left behind by the radical world-altering gospel of Jesus. Right? Paul's world has been turned upside down, and he wants to turn the whole world upside down too. The call for men and women to no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind, plays itself out in some surprisingly gendered ways within Paul's own letters. I've ended up spending more space and time in Paul's letters than I initially assumed I would, because it turns out there was more gendered metaphors in there. Um, But being conscious of how long I've already been speaking, I just want to end with a few concluding thoughts. Uh, on what this might mean for us today, especially as it relates to the fraught modern discussions of gender. I'm just going to put Paul back up there to be with us. And I just want to give a shout out. Uh, if any of a lot of my thinking here has been uh, comes from a wonderfully integrative, holistic New Testament scholar, a friend of Labrie, and an all-around lovely guy, Wes Hill, who. Um, yeah, whose teaching has been helpful for me around these things. And I just think it's worth saying, it's worth putting out there, in 2021, to speak so much about a biological male who calls himself a mother, a nurse, and someone who is in labor, like Paul does, even when they're clearly metaphorical and spiritual in nature, it has to bring up, and I think in many of our minds, the fraught relationship between biological sex and cultural assumptions about gender, including the whole discussion around trans issues. And of course, I can't go down that sufficiently. I just do think this sort of discussion 
has th- those things in the background. And so why I think the clear categorical distinction between sex and gender, I've talked a lot tonight about gender, and I've assumed that's a clear distinction uh, in people's minds. But just as I've been working with it, I've talked about sex as pertaining to biological realities having to do with nature, genes, hormones, external, internal genitalia. And gender, on the other hand, pertains to cultural realities, learned characteristics, personality traits, behavioral patterns. Now, on the one hand, this sort of tidy distinction uh, between sex and gender, uh, on the one hand, it's not laid out clearly in the Bible or in the Christian tradition. Uh, On the other hand, it's under immense scrutiny, if not outright dismissal, in a lot of progressive discourse. Uh, That being said, I think it's a distinction that is still helpful uh, and is worth holding on to and considering. Uh, As it relates to biological sex, I think throughout the scriptures, throughout Paul's letters, the difference between male and female is just portrayed as a created difference. A given creational good that is, of course, fallen, but ultimately to be welcomed with gratitude, even if that welcome is difficult, is confusing, and is costly. At the same time, when we consider gender, the ways of being male and female, I believe there's a discernible pattern in Paul's writing which refuses to simply baptize cultural norms around gender, but it doesn't always set out just to subvert them either. For Paul, it seems that the criterion for discerning faithfulness as it relates to gender comes not from assumed cultural norms, whether they're conservative norms or progressive norms. Uh, It doesn't come from there, but it comes from attending to the norm-altering gospel of the risen Christ. This means Paul calls us to discernment, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So at times, our ways of living gendered lives will resemble adherence to some cultural norms, and I think that's, that's okay. And at other times, and for other folks... They will challenge and subvert cultural norms. I'd be happy to talk more at length about uh, any of these things. I see this dynamic of refiguring, rethinking sort of cultural norms around masculinity or femininity to not just be something that Paul did on a whim. I think Jesus does this too. Um, And I think there's even some in the Old Testament. Um, But this dynamic of at times resembling our wider culture and at times challenging or subverting it, I think is vital, the call to discernment. There's been a growing awareness, especially throughout the years, uh, the last five years or so, in which way, in which certain types of culturally constructed gender assumptions, be they rugged, individualistic, strong, macho masculinity, or compliant, domesticated femininity, that have come from American culture have, have, I think we've become aware more and more of how those have migrated into the church uh, and have been baptized as a biblical norm, a biblical manhood, or a biblical womanhood. And I think it has had catastrophic results. It has enabled abusers, it has furthered patriarchy, it's perpetuated church cultures that are just toxic. These forms of masculinity and femininity have become idolatrous, I think. Uh, and um, an important book on this, I didn't put it up on a slide, but um, 
be Kristen Dumais, Jesus, and John Wayne. Uh, it's especially for folks who've grown up in that world. It's a it's a very readable historical account uh, of that that I think cause calls for a reckoning with how evangelicalism, in particular, has adopted those norms and baptized those norms, and how there's been some real problems that have come with it. I don't. May I can say more about Dumais later. Um, but it just has to be admitted that at many junctures, our resemblance to the wider culture has has been a problem, um, and is something that we need to repent of. But it's important to remember that at the same time, it has gone the other way too. The gospel has also transformed cultural assumptions and practices around gender when they have not fit with the pattern we see in Christ. So one example comes from a historian named John Wolfe, who's a historian of 19th century British evangelicalism. Um, And he writes this. He says about conceptions of manliness in 19th century British evangelicalism. He says they were a challenge to contemporary secular male values. Emphasis on honor, machismo, and lineage was confronted by a stress on calling moral virtue, and the family as a spiritual community of mutual affection, rather than merely an expression of patriarchal sovereignty. And building on this, theologian Steve Holmes writes, and for those who have been reared in some of the more strict uh, kind of Jesus and John Wayne (laughs) Christian cultures, this could be hard to imagine, but Holmes says this about 19th century British evangelicalism. He says, evangelicalism taught men to be gentler, less aggressive, and more considerate. While it didn't often refuse the prevailing cultural assumption of male dominance in the family, the evangelicals repeatedly and explicitly recast it in less patriarchal ways. He also writes of a transformation for women as well through the evangelical movement, saying that evangelical women, on the one hand, experienced a fundamental spiritual equality with men. They're both war- they're, they're warriors, they're athletes together, all of them. And this inevitably strained the boundaries of a patriarchal society. On the other hand, evangelical social, conter- social concern led these women to devote their leisure time to campaigning and so to public action and political involvement. A, whim- a woman who, after her conversion, ceased to attend the theater and instead became active in campaigning for social improvement, necessarily began to redefine her position in culture. There's, of course, a multitude of examples throughout history that we could put um, on either of the side, where the church has failed uh, or where the church has challenged. But the Apostle Paul, our mother in Christ who uses metaphors to structure our perception of reality, to rearrange the furniture of our minds, to invite us into intimacy, he does so because he is compelled by the gospel of the risen Christ. And he calls us and models for us the need for gender discernment as it relates to the assumptions of the cultures and places we find ourselves in as his children in Christ. And so that's where I want to stop. Um, and I want to open it up to questions, to comments, to pushback, to agreement, um, yeah, or to wherever.
you want to take this. Um, so thank you for listening. Um, and, uh, yep. Hey, Dick. Yeah. yeah. It gets into some areas really, both Marty and I have done different areas here that are really interesting. Um, but how would you, one of the things that to me illustrates, I think, the very point you're making in a slightly different way, is the centrality of the imitation of Christ. Mm-hmm. Not just for men, because Jesus was a man. Mm-hmm. Every Christian is meant to imitate Christ. Yeah. And yet he was a man that you're meant to imitate. Mm-hmm. And we, but when you see the specific things that we're meant to imitate, which I've worked a lot on this, mm-hmm. uh, humility, love, service, forgiveness, suffering unjustly, and courage, the things were explicitly taught. Yeah. That is going to press or draw men and women to huge levels of deep, deep growth yeah. as human people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and each one had men in a way appropriate to them as they were created to be, women as they were created, but not having a a masculinity list of things to become, like John Lee or a yeah. feminine uh, list yeah. of things to. to uh, uh, imitate, but just trust our sex and gender to God and obey Jesus. Yeah. And be like Jesus. Yeah. Then it's going to come out very creatively. Yeah. Sort of men and women we turn out to be. Yeah. Uh, different from all of them, men and women. Yeah. Uh, in a way, but, but deeper and more truly. I don't know. Does that connect with what you're? I hope it does. I feel. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. To relativize the the, the fixed gender. And, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, it seems like for some, there's. Um, I I follow on social media some Christian teachers who fairly regularly and fairly um, precisely lay out what it means to be a man. Um, and I, a lot of those things, I'm like, I I think if that like I I don't necessarily have a problem with any. I don't think any of those things are wrong. I think. Sports can be really great. I think, like time in the woods is really like good. It's like good to hunt. Like these are all, these are all good things. But I don't see them as like if you don't follow these things, uh, you've failed at masculinity and failed being a Christian man. You could follow all those things and be a terrible Christian uh, or not a Christian at all. That's the thing that keeps getting me. Um, and yeah, so it can go, kind of go the other way. And um, yeah, Marty, did you want to? Well, just along along the same lines, it's it's just always you don't, you just don't have in the New Testament definitions of masculinity and femininity and exhortations for men to be masculine and women to be feminine. You have all the Christians, all believers, yeah. called to the fruit of the spirit, which historically have many of many of the qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience, especially, was defined as feminine. Women are meant to be patient. Mm-hmm. Men are meant to be, are, are meant to be, you know, in the battle. And then you, you take the fruit of the spirit, you take the armor of God, the full armor of God. And these are, these are applied to all believers, men and women mm-hmm. alike. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I just think what, I'm really glad you mentioned the, um, I know it was just a mention, and I know it's a huge topic, which I am wrestling with, but, the, the, the sort of trans issues and so on, but uh, but I am convinced that 
it would not be such a problem if, if the church <laughs> had had been thinking along the lines of what of what you're saying. If there been if there had been much more room for a vast number, you know, a great range of expression yeah. of masculinity and femininity, of men to be the men God made them to, to be, bearing the fruit of the spirit as well as the armor of God, and yeah. women, women as well. But but it, but so often the subcultures are pushing the, the macho, toxic masculinity and the submissive female. Um, yeah, there is. There's. I forget. I should have written it. I wrote down. Maybe I did write it down. Um, I don't think I did. There is a part. There's um, in First Corinthians 15 or 16. Paul talks about to be courageous mm-hmm. or to be brave, and the word really is like manly, mm-hmm. uh, like be manly. Um, and there is a Christian men's organization that is like uses that um but it's sort of like a misunderstanding i think of language and it's also just missing the fact that paul is writing this letter to men and to women and the idea though is that courage was a male like the language constricted some of that the word for courage was just connected to men so i just think there's this irony of of of, anyway of like that that is something that people get i've had I've read people say, "Look, this is a call to a certain type of. This is a call to for to be manly, for men to man up, which you know, to be courageous and brave. I think that's great. I just don't well, think it's do. yeah. Well, I think it's good for for mm-hmm. yeah for men Earth and women. Right, right. Yeah, Clint, did you? What want do to? you think of the analogy that says men's minds are wired this way and women's wired are our minds are wired a certain way. A human mind, a, a male's mind, is distinctly different than that of a of a woman. Yeah, you've heard those before, I think. There's, I there's I have. Videos. I've I've read. Um, I've actually read a, a fair well, not a fair bit. I've read some on like neurological research on porn addiction, and there does seem to be some difference, uh, but. I think the way that term is used sort of in common um, expression or, or like day in, day out, like on the street or wherever or behind a I don't know. Anyway, um, the way it's often used is actually not based in any sort of uh, like neurological understanding of the brain. It's just a way to say that men are different than women. Like there's gender we differences. We we don't know how to talk to each other. Yeah, so I don't, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't, I just don't know all of those things. I guess I, in some ways, I'm, I think, yeah, I think men are different from women, but I think men are different from other men, and I think women are different from other women, and I think sometimes it's helpful to talk about differences, and sometimes it's just not, actually. I think it perpetuates more on more distance and just unhelpful mystery about about one another and tends to I think reinforce some negative gender stereotypes uh, that's just yeah but I'm yeah anyway Marty um, yeah uh, Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen actually she lectured here at one point but um, in, she, she, she's a social scientist so there's a lot of work on gender just says all the research shows that there's much greater 
um, um, differences within each gender that you know that there's, there's there's great diversity. Just sort of what you were, what you were saying, it the stereotypes. You know, men are um, women are gentle and, and, and nurturing, and men are whatever aggressive, whatever. Those those may be true at the, the extremes of the sort of bell curve, but there's way more overlap on, yeah. on men and women's actual. Um, yeah. Um, and, and we also, we had a brain scientist here once, this was many years ago, and it just a meal discussion came up where somebody was going on. It was a time when Dobson was making a focus on the family, making a lot about, you know, women's brains are this, men's brains are that. And this guy just chuckled and, and just shook his head. He was a, like a postdoc at Harvard doing brain science, and he said, it is so much more complex. Than, mm. the, the human brain is so much more complex. Mm-hmm. And even something that's that in recent years has come out um, of the, the very complex feedback loop between say, genes and behavior. So it's not, you know, we're not just determined by our genes or by our hormones. Um, women are not just determined to be more nurturing by their genes and hormones. In fact, there's this huge evidence that men who are nurturing fathers, men who nurture babies, take care of their babies, um, their female hormone, their their female hormones go way up, and their male their testosterone goes down, and um, oxyto- oxytocin I think it is, but it's the it's the hormone involved in breastfeeding go up. Yeah, it's a bonding. Yeah, it's a bonding. Yeah, it's a bonding. Yeah, so bonds you. There's yeah, just yeah. this very complex feedback loop between biology and behavior and culture. We're not just you know fixed by the biological yeah. um, realities. <coughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Eleanor. Can I try kind of moving away from the gender thing? So if you were go for it, run. Yeah, yeah, go oh, wherever. Okay. Or um, unless someone or or anyway. Oh wait, did you want to say something about this? I promise I, I'll come right back. Which I think so. <coughs> yeah, someone said something like this earlier. Um, <coughs> but I think it's worth noticing how much um, like gender stereotypes or, or, or like rigid gender norms <clears throat> have played into um, the rhetoric around transsexualism mm-hmm. yeah. yes, exactly. recently that basically <coughs> it's sort of, you've got this sort of contradiction that on the one hand it's like gender's not fixed or not a thing mm-hmm. and on the other hand you've got you know, some people who might say, if my kid, who who looks like a boy, wants to play with a doll, he might be a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> like, where does that come from? Why can't he just be a boy who plays with a girl? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it can, it's sort of, yeah, fed in, and, and as you said, I mean, they didn't, like, perpetrate it. Oh, like, Perpetrates about church hugely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, one book that I found helpful on this, that, um, like I just found out was a controversial book. Um, like right before I started this lecture, <laughs> I was told, uh, is a book by Rogers Brubaker called Trans. He is um, professor of sociology at UCLA, foundation chair at the university or UCLA. Um, but yeah, this is Princeton University Press, it's 2016, but he has just like a, 
um, like a, um, a schematic uh, for just like the trans moment and different categories. He talks about the trans of migration, which is sort of moving from one specific sex to another specific sex that reaffirms like both sex. And then the sort of cultural, the, the gender stereotypes that go along with both. And then he has the trans of between, which is uh, kind of a little bit in one and a little bit in the other simultaneously. And then a trans of beyond, uh, which is rejecting both and just moving to kind of a third. Which in this book, I mean, it's from 2015. I read it this summer, not having read much on this. Uh, but already felt like, wow, this, the conversation has moved on, like, quite significantly. And talking with a friend who, uh, is a professor, um, well, uh, some of us know her, but it, she sees this more in, um, the transit beyond as where most, a lot of her students that identify as trans, like, that's where it, it mostly is. But it's, it just, I think that, I mean, it's a help, I thought it was a helpful book. It also brings, race in and and very anyway i thought it, i i found it a helpful book but maybe it's um no book is perfect right um uh but yeah did you want to add anything else i know yeah just you were saying you're saying that made me think of that resource but yeah eleanor <laughs> yeah You know, and even I've read other you know other writers on Paul that I think don't present Paul like present Paul well, that just haven't kind of picked up on on this component of him. I, I don't really know because I mean it's not like you're going to look to Gregory of Nyssa or I mean I don't really know um, Anselm's stuff, Anselm of Canterbury stuff. Um, there's another Anselm that I'm a little more familiar with, but like I wouldn't look to them for. <laughs> I mean, they say some pretty terrible things about women as well. Um, but they're also from a different time yeah. and had different... I mean, but Gregory also actually is pretty amazing because he... So the Cappadocians are sort of a group of theologians that argue for basically what becomes... They're sort of the architects of Nicene Trinitarianism. Um, there's three of them. Uh, there, there's Basil and there's Gregory... And then there's another Gregory, Nazianzus. And Basil and Gregory are brothers. Um, and they have a sister, Macrina. And they, Gregory wrote a biography of Macrina and basically said, all of our ideas came from her. Um, she's the, like, she's the spiritually mature one. She is, um, she's just like light years ahead of us. Um, he says a lot of other odd things. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if I want to say odd, but he just says some things that are are, are just from very much from like a different time, and I don't yeah. totally understand. So, yeah. Um, but I I don't know. I mean, that's that's 
Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I th- th- I got that from Gaventa's book um, initially, and she sort of traces through. And it started uh, this her whole project started because she noticed the one in Galatians about Paul being in labor, and she was like, I you know I never kind of noticed that she was at Princeton at the time. She's a professor there. She's like, I'm just gonna go. I'm going to go see what everybody said about this, like all the big deal commentators last year. And she's like, basically no one said anything. Um, And she couldn't believe it. She was like, wait, okay, like Coleman's got to say something. Uh, He doesn't? Like, okay, maybe like go back to Luther. He's got it. Like, but it was just sort of not paid attention to. And I don't, yeah, I don't know why. Um, I mean, I could assume why, but I, I don't know. You know what they say about assumptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um. It's still more true in the black church. There's a lot more, you know, Jesus is my mother, he's my father, he's my sister, he's my brother. And this is sort of gospel songs and music. That, yeah. And it's, it's more acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, Clint. But Paul isn't talking literally. No. You know, he's using this, the meaning behind getting milk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he, he's looking to, I mean, there's... He's looking to something in the real world that is familiar to explain something that's unfamiliar. And he could have described his apostleship through any number of things to sort of, you know, have your mind go in certain directions. And I I think it's very striking that he, from what we know, is the only man in antiquity um, to sort of say, for you to make sense of what I'm on about, like, consider a nursing mother. Um, like that's what like and so yeah I don't think he's saying he I you know, I he's definitely not um, uh, saying that it is I do think there's uh, an irony um, that an image that Paul uses he uses lots of other images but when he is talking about he often talks about when he talks about that I'm a father it's almost like when he says to Philemon like I became his father which was like Begetting, like I almost like I brought him to. But he uses these maternal images to show about like nurture and care and continuing on in uh, the work of an apostle. And I understand there's exegetical questions with other passages. I just think it's incredibly sad and ironic that the image that, that Paul points to to help them make sense not just of the beginning of faith, but uh, are leading people to faith, but nurturing them in their faith. He, when he points to women, women can't be uh, pastors in many churches. Women can't be in leadership authority in many churches. I just think there's a sad irony that people have read Paul in a way, only looking at... Uh, um, I mean, there are exegetical questions, but um, anyway, I just think it's sad that what Paul points to is has been excluded. Uh, in a lot of places, and I think I I just I ultimately disagree with. Um, but yeah, Jessa, were you going to say something? Yeah, it's, a, it's not a fully formed question, but I don't have the complete verse in my mind. But you know where Paul says women should be saved through child. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wonder the fact that Paul uses the metaphor of childbearing for himself. Does that in any way kind of change the reading of that text oh yeah i well i think that is not a metaphoric childbearing where like in matthew and mark and revelation where it's talking about like birth pangs or 
even where Paul talks about creation is groaning and like, 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 um, I think that's metaphorical Mm -hmm. where I think whatever's happening in the first Timothy two situation with women will be saved through childbearing, um, is in reference to like a literal, Mm -hmm. uh, childbearing. And I, I, yeah. Is that enough, or do I need to say? Do I need to say any more about First Timothy two? Because I, 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 I've always I've struggled with that. So yeah, yeah. It's not. Maybe wonder if there are other interpretations. Of yeah, there are. There are. Yeah. There's a lot of, of interpretations about uh, what's going on. Um, I didn't. Yeah. We don't have to go down that. No, no, no. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, it'd be good to. Um, but yeah, I, I would. Well, maybe. Maybe you and I can have a, a tea or a sure. coffee and <laughs> talk yeah. about that. But yeah, I do. I've read a number of. I mean, even within, so on, like both sides of the. So, and not that these are the only side, or like, both on the side that wants to affirm women in ministry, like in all aspects, and then the side that doesn't. There's not consensus really anywhere on what on earth is going on, in First Timothy two and. One of the, like, premier books and, like, head scholars who would be in the uh, complementarian camp, uh, which is not saying women shouldn't be ordained, mm-hmm. um, he says there's not, you can't go more than two words without having a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a very hard, like, it's textually hard, it's just unclear, and there's just mm-hmm. a lot of interpretive decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even on... So on either side, there's just not exact clarity on what's going on. And so that, I think one tragedy about that discussion is that's like where the, the conversation often begins, mm-hmm. where I, I think we should begin with clearer, clearer things. I, even if it's just like Acts 2, gifts are given by the Spirit, not, but you know, old, your old men will dream dreams and your, or men, anyway, I, <laughs> I, if I wasn't, if it's these lights. I'm telling you, these lights are are, are killing me. But the, yeah, the, the gifts of the spirit are not given uh, according exclusively to, or are given in regards to one's uh, biological sex, uh, but are given by the spirit. And then, you know, I see women. I see women in working alongside Paul. I talked about this last time. Phoebe is called a deacon. Junia is called an apostle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Syntyche and Eudoia are, or however you say her name, mm-hmm. you yeah, like they're called, they work alongside Paul. Um, so I see that, and um, I also think First Corinthians fourteen and First Corinthians eleven are the other sort of clobber passages or mm-hmm. big passages, and I do hope to sort of have my ducks in a row. Or, I mean, I anyway, <laughs> I think I might just stop talking. Um, <laughs> But I do want to cover those in another time, and I think there's good. I think there's really some really helpful, um, some helpful scholarship on what Paul is doing there um, in those different in those different places. But I, yeah, so yeah, Clint. Um, I have a question about um, something I've been assuming about the word woman and the word man. Okay. Okay. The word woman has the word man in it part of the human race. Men and women are both equal part of the human race. Except for the word woman has the prefix womb. In other words, a man with a womb. 
Still man, still part of the human race, but this one, this type, this type of man has the ability to beget children, which is a tremendous blessing because they have a womb. Is that the right way to look at those words? I would, I would not, um, I would not look at them that way. Um, but I've been wrong on lots of things, and I could be wrong about uh, this too. I mean, I do think, yeah, if, if you know, if if you want to use for for years, there's a long tradition of speaking about humans as like man, like man is an encompassing term for men and women, and um, yeah, I. But I've not heard that before um, tonight. That that's what sort of separates sort of separates them. I think there's also other differences um, besides um, besides a womb. But I haven't heard that. Maybe others have. But I, I just want it. Um, I haven't heard it anywhere else. Either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does anyone else have any any thoughts or questions or? Or maybe is there something online? There's or? a comment online. Any questions? Okay. There's a comment that says, I just finished Dumez's book and feel I've been lulled into the paradigm she exposes through her research. And I'm quite horrified seeing it for what it is. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, what was that? Kristen, uh, the um, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen oh, Cobb's Dumez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard, it's a, dis, it's a, it's a hard read. I um, would be happy to chat with you, whoever you are. Uh, <laughs> at some point, you can contact Labrie. But um, uh, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard read that kind of chronicles. Um, I mean, going back to the twenties and when uh, people move were moving to urban centers and work moved from like the farm and more bodily activities to kind of sitting at a desk and doing other jobs, maybe in a factory, and how that sort of created a crisis in masculinity, which then led to sort of lifting up as a culture, not just like in the church, but like certain understandings of masculinity, strength and machismo and um, sort of competence with tools and whatnot, and that that sort of then became baptized in the church, John Wayne became, I mean, the book chronicles all of these ways that, um, uh, John Wayne kept showing up as like the prime, it's like the icon of masculinity in Christian places. I thought it was just a catchy name, but, um, and yeah, it goes kind of to the modern era. And yeah, I mean, I think Dumais, it tells us an important, um, Part of American Christianity. I don't think it's the entirety of how the church has understood being male or female, which is in part why I wanted to end not just with female, but um, with sort of uh, uh, British evangelicalism making men softer as opposed to making them uh, tougher, making them more um, uh, gentle. But yeah, it's I, th- I think it's a good book. I think it's a book people should read. It. I think. I don't. I don't totally. Yeah. Um, I don't totally know what to say. Um, I was shocked. You know. I will. I'll put. I'll put this up on. She. She like so. 
I put this as like a, a sort of in case it came up in conversation. But she chronicles like this, this way that like <clears throat> certain understandings of masculinity and femininity in the home especially um, played out. And then, I mean, just even today we've heard more news about like Ravi Zacharias and like a culture in a, not a church or a home, but a, a Christian organization that sort of allowed some of these things. And she just chronicles time and again um, how this, uh, this sort of patriarchal ordering led to men being able to get away with things they shouldn't be able to get away with. And it's worth saying that didn't only happen in the church. That, and it didn't happen everywhere in the church. Obviously it happens all over, but it's worth owning. But this is, she interacts with this guy, Doug Wilson, uh, just a tiny bit. And this is a quote from one of his books called Federal Husband. And, um, I guess you can read it, but uh, well, I'll read it. The first time the dishes are not done, he must sit down with his wife immediately and gently remind her that this is something which has to be done. At no time may he lose his temper, badger her, call her names, etc. He must constantly remember and confess that she is not the problem, he is. By bringing this gently to her attention, he is not to be primarily pointing to her need to repent. Uh, rather, he is exhibiting the fruit of his repentance. If she continues to rebel after patient effort, he should at some point call the elders of the church and ask them for a pastoral visit. When the government of the home has failed to such an extent and a godly and consistent attempt by the husband to restore the situation is broken down, then the involvement of the elders is fully appropriate. To be clear, it's just talking about not doing dishes. And it's also worth saying, he wrote this, he wrote this in 1999, and like four or five years later, he had the Christianity Today Book of the Year. Not for this book, but for another book. And I don't want to say everything this person, that he's written is, is bad, but I think this is, I think this is actually insane, and I think it's kind of wicked. Um, I said kind of before wicked, how do you, how do you modify wicked kind of? Um, but I, I just don't understand this. But she she chronicles this sort of thing showing up, and as well as um, these uh, like evangelical guides to being uh, women um, that are sort of saying to women, "You need to be this for your man," and they. Anyway, I, we could talk a while about Jesus and John Wayne. I'll take it off that and come back to Paul. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, Esther? This is going back a little bit to what, what Eleanor said before um, and, and talking about the metaphors. So, rewinding. Yeah, yeah, let's go um, there. Yeah, um, do you think that that's what we're like hitting up against a little bit? Is that, like, why it's been overlooked? Why these maternal metaphors have been overlooked? Are kind of because of, like, how... Are these metaphors maybe coming out of Paul's more like concrete Hebrew roots? Mm-hmm. Um, because we see a lot of maternal imagery, obviously, in the Old Testament as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if that's kind of where that's coming through. I don't know. Yeah. Up yeah. Gaventa um, thinks that the, the nursing images come from numbers um, numbers uh, 11 verse 12 so I'll just read a little more it said um, 
It's Mo- Moses says it. Uh, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, <clears throat> all the ent- uh, all at the entrances of their tents. Then the Lord became angry, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, "Why have you treated your servant so badly? Have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me?" Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling child to the land that you promised on the oath of their ancestors? She just wonders if like even that image that Moses uses in the like just um, is like deep somewhere in Paul's, you know, consciousness and, and um, yeah. Especially with the church that's grumbling. Yeah, especially with the church that's grumbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a fair. That's a fair. Um, I think that would be probably a, like a, a fair assumption or, or, or thing to look down, Marty. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been struck by you know, God is called Father, but He's but all in the Old Testament, but. Um, or more, I think, in the New Testament. But, but, and and many people, you know, argue are arguing for this this orthodox view. We can't call God any, any other metaphors. But there's so many metaphors for God. It's rich metaphorical language. But one of them that's, that's really struck me is I think it's from Deuteronomy, where the Lord yeah. says, "I am the womb that bore you and the breast that gave you suck." Yeah. And it, there's there's just the metaphorical language is meant to scramble your categories. I mean, yeah. I mean it's just much more complex. But yeah. The gender is clearly much more complex. God does not... And there's nowhere in the Bible where God describes himself metaphorically with by um, by male sex organs. Mm. But he does describe himself, hmm. I am your father who gave you birth, who, who bore you, whose breasts gave you stuff. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And it's like right back, it's like back to back. And it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah. Where is that in Deuteronomy again? Is that Deuteronomy um, 32? It. Oh, it's okay. It's, yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah. But I, I mean, that, that assumption that it is, yeah, as, as the church moved a different direction. And then also as like leadership eventually became in, like most, mostly men, I just wondered if, I mean, though clearly some of them, connected with it but I mean I wouldn't want to yeah I don't yeah I think I don't think I would want to say that or uh, you know maybe I should want to um, but um, yeah yeah do you have any other thought or yeah I just I guess I'm thinking about like how different cultures like obviously language is cultural and, and meta- metaphors are within cultures and so yeah, there's cultures that are more, I guess partly because our culture also, like, childbirth and nursing and all those things are quite, like, hidden or, like, sanitized, mm-hmm. a lot like death is yeah. um, in our culture, so it's hmm. also kind of a thing that's, like, I guess sanitized is the word I want to use, so it's not, it's not as, like, real and, like, gritty. <coughs> yeah. Not everyone has seen a baby born because, like, we all live in this one-room house and babies are born at home, you know? Yeah. The, yeah. The first baby I ever held was my son. I never held a baby before. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's like, so when we had Jacob, there were four couples that we were friends with, and we all had gotten, well, one couple had been married 
quite a bit before us, but we all got married within a few months of each other, and then but we all got pregnant for the, with our first kid. I mean, the wives all got pregnant, but like um, <laughs> with our like in, within like months of each other. So they call it like the expanding women's club, and like they, but like so Aaron and Amy had the first baby, and I remember Aaron just being like, "Do you want to hold her?" And I was like, "I'm okay. Like that's cool. Like whatever." We Jacob was second. And and after I held Jacob, I was like, I want to hold Sadie, you know? I was like, oh, I can do this now. And, like, Frank and Dave were like, no, no, we're cool. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, then William was born, and then and then, then Jacob was held. But, like, it was like it wasn't until we, we each had our own kid that we would, like, it was just because, it, like, we just didn't know. I don't know. We Like, if we were very, I was in particular, um... That I, my life had been sanitized from small children, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So I wonder. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So Ben, did you have something? I was just. This is just kind of a random comment, but I was just struck by. Um, you can imagine people throughout church history, even today, looking at those metaphors and just being uncomfortable with them. Like, eh, well, that's weird. You know, let's just let's just glaze over them. But I, I was just. Uh, Struck, yeah, yeah. I was struck by how uh, I think it was um, Gregory of Nyssa just seemed to love it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really went for it. He even called Paul abreast. Yeah. Or is it like he? Uh huh. Abreast for him. He's not like. Oh, then Paul uses this weird feminine metaphor. He, he's, yeah. he's like, he gets it and he's emphasizing it and reveling in this, mm-hmm. like, um, which which is pretty striking to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, like, it's much more striking than sort of uncomfortable language than pulse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, I feel like early church, that era to me is so, so peculiar in what they like t- attach on to. Because like he attached on to this, which I haven't really read much from, except for that when Gaventa sort of in- interacts with him a little bit. But like he has a lot of allegorical readings of the Song of Songs, um, which are like like I don't know if he was super uncomfortable with embodied stuff, and then so what, I think there's space for allegory within mm-hmm. Song of Songs. Like I think it's sort of a both and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's just interesting, you know. And also he, this is unrelated. He preached he preached a sermon from Ecclesiastes that is on. Uh, abolition of slavery, and he's the first first person we know in the Western world to call for the abolition of slavery. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who's like a Platonist, who's yeah. calling Paul abreast, who's like <laughs> allegorically reading, just like a like fascinating guy, but just like um, yeah. Anyway, it was like yeah, it was like like it was him, and then it was silent for a long time. Like people called for more humane treatment, or sort of. Whatever, but he was the first one to say this whole thing is bad because mm-hmm. if someone is an image of God, how can you put a price on that? Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's from a sermon from Ecclesiastes. So. <laughs> but um, yeah, anyone else have any anything? It's okay if not. But yeah, just oh yeah, just, just <laughs> mainly off topic, but the ones that's not. Just the role of metaphors and how important they are. I spent some of the afternoon listening to the impeachment proceedings, mm-hmm. and, and uh, the leader of the impeachment 
the manager gave a, gave a metaphor. What we're looking at here, looking at what Trump has done, is he is the fire chief who sets oh, yeah. the theater on fire, does nothing to try and stop the fire, and then sends us in second command and blames it for not being able to put it out. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a metaphor, a story, uh, a parable. If you believe that, then it settles where what you think about the whole question of the impeachment. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it does a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. It, it does, it, 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 and you have to, it has, it has to have a different picture of it. You have to undo that metaphor and separate yourself from it to free Trump from that accusation. Hmm. And, and it just makes you think how persuasive they are. And, and the metaphor like we, the metaphors like we've been talking about here, they get into your skin, yeah. and they really shape the way you yeah. see all sorts of things. Now, this is a very highly controversial yeah. situation, obviously, about as controversial as you can get. But, but, but uh, I, I just thought of the power of that image. Mm-hmm. How do we understand it? And, and we... we Understand it by getting images, putting yeah. images together, getting metaphors together. Say, how do how do I make this connect? Yeah. So they're, they're so they're so powerful. Yeah, and I think Paul is an endlessly imaginative uh, writer. Like um, for someone who, I mean, it seems like perhaps Romans. He really sat down and was like, "How do I want to say this?" Because uh, it's a church I've never been to. He's got like a, a crew of characters that he names at the end that were helping him compose it. But like it seems like most of the other letters, maybe Ephesians would be another exception, but like are written to address particular problems. Uh, and it's like it's like on the fly, it's pastoring. It's not like speaking into a vacuum or writing a theology text. It's being it's like I can't be I'm I'm an apostle, I can't be there in person, so I'm gonna write this down. To give you something. And so I feel like for him to be writing things, maybe not on the fly is the right term, because I, I think writing in the ancient world required a lot of resources, but still he's he's writing in response to problems more times than not. Often division and infighting is, is the big one. But he's able to employ all of these images that I think it, some of them have become kind of tired or, or we're so familiar with them we almost forget that they're almost forget that they're an image. We talked at a lunch table this week about like putting on Christ that he says and like put on Christ, which is sort of like saying like wear Jesus, wear God as clothing. And um, yeah, clothing does really interesting things if you're on a baseball team or if you're in prison or if you're going to a wedding. You know, like what does it mean to put on like? Um, it's quite an interesting image that you could really sit with and could, like you said, it could like get into you. And so I think Paul, to be able to write to problem, like write uh, towards issues or problems in churches, as opposed to just sitting down and drafting a lecture or drafting a um, a letter, uh, and, and the way he can weave in those images, and also the way. I need help with this. This is where I think some scholarship is really helpful. The way he's like pulling in echoes of Old Testament scripture and sort of reusing scripture. He's just, I think he's an endlessly fascinating, fascinating guy. And I'm also very sympathetic with people who think he's a jerk uh, because they've heard him. They've been taught him in a particular way. And certain things have been emphasized. Um, and uh, he's been presented as 
you know, the first reformed theologian or the first um, whatever. And yeah, I think he kind of maybe is the first reformed theologian, but still he does it in a more interesting way. Um, so were you going to say something, Sarah? Yeah, I was thinking um, about uh, your definition of metaphor as um, describing an unfamiliar thing in terms of a familiar thing and how that leads to greater intimacy of knowing yeah. mm-hmm. thing. And I think the really potent metaphors actually work in both directions. Mm. It makes yeah. the, the familiar thing unfamiliar. Yeah, 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 yeah. It makes it strange. And yeah. so, like, while there's mystery, or there's there's intimacy, there's mystery. Yeah, that's that good. Generated by by a, an apt mm-hmm. metaphor, and uh, so like I think I think this lecture is really helpful mm-hmm. because we need these unfamiliar metaphors to sort of help us. With Paul again, who we think we know. We think Paul's the familiar thing here. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, well, maybe, maybe there's a bit more mystery. <laughs> yeah. This man and yeah. um, the way he understood himself and how we can relate to him too. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, yeah, I was Thank thinking you. like the rearranging of furniture, like that. I love that. Like that metaphor creates, yeah, sort of this space that you inhabit and. When you rearrange furniture in a room, you don't just experience the room differently, you actually see the furniture differently, too. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Do you remember when uh, Julia Brown, like, yes. did her art thing over it? Yes. I wanted a picture of that, yes. but, uh, but anyway. Sorry, I don't, that's a... No one knows what I'm talking about. No one knows except Sarah and I. Maybe Ben and Nikhil remember her art installation. She, like, took all the furniture and piled it up over here. And then she had cut, she had her own rug, and she cut a rug and, like, wrapped it around. And and for, like, 24 hours, it was here. It was, like, a piece of art. Anyway, um, it was sort of fun. But she's a cool person. <laughs> yeah, anyone else? Yeah, Dave? This is just a quick question. This, is yeah. this lecture, this is from Woody Bauman. Okay, Woody oh, Bauman. hey, Woody, yeah. Uh, he said, this lecture deserves a reading list that can be posted. Really interesting and useful. Well, that was two sentences. But uh, yeah. <laughs> lecture is interesting and useful, but can, will there be a reading list of the books that you... Um. Yeah, I mean, I on just the whole, I I really, um, I I really would recommend uh, Cynthia Long Westfall's Paul and Gender. I think it's a good book. It, I mean, the people who endorse it also on the back are, I think, very helpful, very trustworthy um, scholars. And what I like about her book in particular is a lot of times. Um, the discussion is really just like Paul and women. Uh, but she is looking, like her subtitle says, it's the Apostle's vision for men and women in Christ. And um, she does a lot of, I don't know, in a sense you kind of think what new could be said about this discussion. And I, I found that this she had a lot of really new, helpful things to say. Um, so I think she's great. Um uh, there's also um, a woman in the UK named Lucy Pepiot, who's very helpful. 
on this. She um, has most recently her book is Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women. She does a lot of interesting stuff with the Corinthians passages uh, as well. And then um, I also like a, a guy named Craig Keener uh, on Paul and Women. It's called Paul, Women, and Wives. It's a big book. Um, but he's like one of those scholars that just <laughs> writes a 400-page book every six months. And Yeah, and it just like, yeah, I mean, you could fill shelves with his stuff. So, yeah, I think those are some good books uh, off the top of my head. There's a new book, a newish book, that's quite expensive and is coming out on paperback soon that is, was supposed to be less expensive, but it was like $10 less expensive, so it's, it's 45 bucks. But um, it's by this guy named William Witt, who actually, the New Testament scholar, I mentioned West Hill, they work at the same school. The book is called Icons of Christ. Um, and it's I've read some little snippets of it, and I'm just saving my pennies and going to get it at some point. But I, that is supposed to be a very... That book has been received very well um, and is considered... People are saying, people that like are into this are saying, this is the book. This is going to be one of the big books for a while. There's a bunch of other scholars... What are you who tackling in that book particularly? He's talking about women's, women's ordination in particular, but he looks at... He kind of approaches it he looks at uh, Catholic arguments, Protestant arguments, and then he sort of says why he doesn't think either of them particularly hold up well with, sometimes with themselves, uh, or then with uh, the New Testament. And um, so, yeah. And then there's also a guy named Scott McKnight, who's written a lot about this. And um, he has a book called The Blue Parakeet that talks a lot about this. And... Um, uh, he just writes, he also writes a ton of books, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a little, those are a few off the top of my head that I think are helpful. I think the Center for uh, Biblical Equality has good stuff. Um, and is that, did I say their name right, Marty? Is that what they're called? Christians for Biblical Equality. Christians for Biblical Equality. And there's this Australian woman who I find incredibly insightful but she doesn't have a book, or I don't think she's a professional scholar, but she's a blog, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but I can find it and then maybe put a comment on the footnote, or on the um, Facebook thing. Her name is Marge. Yeah, anyway. Marge Mouse Cow, I think is how you say her name. She just has a blog that has tons of stuff, and it's all very, everything I've read is very helpful. Um, what was your last name again? I don't know how to say it. Um, uh, I could look it up, like Mar- Mar- Marge Cow or something. M A R G C K. There's a, a W somewhere in there. O W. I don't know. I'm really sorry. This is a very unprofessional. Um, yeah. But anyone else have any um, other questions? If not. Uh, yeah, God bless you. Thank, thank you for watching. Thank you for coming. Yeah.